Amen. If you got your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah chapter 10. That's where we'll be at tonight. Nehemiah chapter 10. Promises, promises, promises. How many of you have ever made a promise and broke it? Mm, you're all in trouble. Everybody's in trouble. I'm going to tell you, it, it's, it's hard because oftentimes when you give your word, it becomes very hard sometimes to fulfill your word, but it's what we're called to do. When we give our promises, when we give our word, my dad used to teach us that your word is your bond. Oftentimes, my dad would do things based on a handshake or just a spoken word. And if he told you he would do it, he did it. He taught us to do the same thing, that if you give your word, you keep it. And sometimes that even means to your own hurt. That even means that if you've spoken something, and, and, and the ones that will most of the time bring this back up to you are your children. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You see, I had told my kids, I promised them that I would one of these days get them a pet. Worst promise I ever made. All right. Now, I was able to, to make it last for a very long time without having to get a pet. And having a pet when I really didn't have a pet. One day, my daughter come down. She was about six years old. And she said, Dad, she says, when are you going to get me a pet? And I said, well, you have a pet. She said, what do you mean I have a pet? I said, you have a pet. He's right out there on the deck right now. She looked out, and there was a squirrel on the deck. I said, that's your pet. That squirrel comes up on this deck every day. And I said, if you go out there at the right time, you can feed him some nuts, and he'll love you forever. And that's your, that's your pet. She said, what's his name? I said, Nutty. So it was the greatest pet ever. I never had to clean up for him. I never had to take care of him. Nothing. The problem was one day we went to Disney World. And on our way down to Disney World, guess what she sees? She sees a squirrel out there. She goes, Dad, Nutty followed us to Disney World. <laughs> yes, he did. He followed us to Disney World. That's awesome. Then she sees two squirrels together. And she goes, Dad, who's that with Nutty? That's his cousin. <laughs> you know, the only bad thing was when you passed roadkill, you had to go, hey, kids, look over there. <laughs> but it worked for a couple of years, and finally my daughter caught on, and she goes, wait a minute. She said, that ain't my pet. And I went, yeah, you're right. That's not a pet. So I had given my words, so guess what I had to do? I bought a dog. <laughs> now I sit back and I go, man, I'm going to learn to think before I speak. And the reason being is it's so important that when you give your word, you keep your word. In fact, the Bible talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In verse 2, it begins like this. Do not be rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through a multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay it that that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. And he's talking about vows to God. How many of you have ever made a vow to God? 
God, I promise you I, I won't do this. Now, usually our vows sometimes come with kind of a, uh, a contract. God, I won't do this if you'll do this for me. I wonder if you guys have ever tried to make a contract with God. But the Bible tells us that we shouldn't vow something to God that we are unwilling to pay, that we're unwilling. In fact, he says it's better not to say anything. But many of us have at times made vows to God. I remember my father made a vow to God because his brother had contracted lung cancer, my uncle. And I remember my dad, Uncle Bill, had got real sick. My dad was a smoker, and my dad said, God, if you will heal my brother, I will never touch cigarettes again. And I remember, now I remember this as a very important day. My father goes into the house, and I remember we had a burn barrel, and he brought out cartons of cigarettes, and he threw them in the barrel. Now, this is before God answered his prayer, and he just lit a match, and he lit them on fire, and my dad never touched a cigarette again. Even to this day, he still hasn't. Now, he didn't know if God was going to answer his part of it, but my dad had made a vow to God, and he was very serious about keeping it. Now, the Lord did answer, and he healed my Uncle Bill, and he cured him of his cancer, but unfortunately, my Uncle Bill kept smoking himself, and two years later, he got the same cancer again, which took his life. But my dad said, you know, I made a vow to God, and God... He said this, God kept his in, so I'm going to forever keep mine. And I've always remembered that of my dad keeping his vow to God. And see, what you got to understand, the people of Israel, we come to the book of Nehemiah, they're getting ready to make a vow to God, a very serious vow. And before they make a vow, they give the list of names. And I'm not going to read through all these names, all right? I know y'all would just love that. But I'm not going to read through all the names, but we're going to look at two elements to the Israeli covenant. And the first element we're going to look at is the people who signed the covenant. Verse 10, verse, or chapter 10, verse 1, just simply says, Now those that sealed were Nehemiah and Tershatha, the son of Hekaliah, and Zedekiah. And then the list goes on and on of all these people. In verse 28 it says this, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nithinims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. Wow. They entered into a covenant with God. They said, we're going to do these things. Do you, do you realize that when you get saved, you enter into a covenant with God, correct? You enter into a covenant with God because when you truly become disciples of Christ, you enter into a covenant that simply says this, I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to take up my cross daily and I'm going to follow you. That's the covenant we enter into. When we say, you know what, when I want to, I want to give my life to Jesus, what does that mean? I'm giving my life to Jesus. It means I'm surrendering. It's no longer my life to live. It's his life now. I make a covenant with God saying, God, my life is yours. Whatever you want to do in and through me, it's all yours. And so when we make that covenant with God, and yet daily some people will pull back on that covenant. They'll say, but I want to do this. Or I want to go here. Or I want to live this way. We break our covenant when we choose to do things our own way and when we sin. These people made this vow with God. and They said, God, if we break this, let us be cursed i mean do you understand the seriousness of that 
I mean, could you imagine what they're calling down upon themselves? God, you can do to us what you long to. Well, here's the truth of the matter. He could do that anyways, right? But they're literally baiting it and saying, God, we agree that if we don't abide by this covenant that we're making with you, we agree that you should come down and do these things to us. And that's pretty powerful if we really thought that God would do that to us, wouldn't he? If we thought that the moment we broke a covenant, God would discipline us. The moment that we broke our commitment to God, God would bring punishment on us. If we really believe that, it just might change our lives. But now we want to look at the crux to the text, the principles upheld in the covenant. Look at some of these things. These are the, there are actually seven principles we're going to look at tonight. The first principle that they wanted to uphold in the covenant was separation in verse 30. And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we are going to be a separate people. Now please understand, this had nothing to do with nationality. A lot of people look at this and they say, oh, God only wanted the Jews to marry the Jews. Well, let me ask you a question. Was Ruth in the lineage of Jesus Christ? She was. Was Ruth an Israelite? No, she was a Moabite. So it had nothing to do with nationality. It had everything to do with religion. That was the whole purpose why God separated them. That's why Ruth could come in because she had done what? She told Naomi she had made this covenant. She said, I die when you die and your God will be my God. She turned her life over to Judaism. She changed. She was willing to give herself over. So it wasn't about nationality. It had everything to do with a relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 16, it says, And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go and worship after their gods, and make thy sons go a whoring after their gods. There was a whole purpose. I don't want you to intermingle with the people of other nations because they will draw you away from me. In fact, Solomon is a prime example of that. Solomon, the one who had been given a dream by God. Solomon, who had been given the wisdom of God. Solomon, who had been given some great and amazing things. God blessed him with riches. God blessed him with popularity. God blessed him with wisdom. God blessed him with his enemies. God blessed him with great architectural structures. God gave Solomon everything. And in the end, when he had married 700 wives, there's his problem, right? (laughs) He married 700 wives, 300 concubines. That just makes me go crazy and give me a headache just thinking about it. But it says those wives drove him away. In other words, they began to build altars and they began to build temples and they began to worship other gods. And then they brought Solomon into their worship with them. That's why the scriptures are so explicit about the importance of staying separated because of our religion. You see, one of the main questions I I talk to people and I ask them when they come and ask me to do a marriage ceremony. First question I ask them, are you a Christian? Actually, I don't even ask them that. I'll say, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? Because I want to know if they're really Christians or not. I don't want to just them go, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, then I can marry you. What do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? And if they don't say, but by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins, and three days later was rose again, and I've repented of my sins, I've turned my life over to him. Unless they say something along those lines, I'm going, you know, you're not a Christian. 
Now, here's the thing. I'll actually marry two non-Christians together. You want to know why? Because if I marry two non-Christians together, they're going to have to go through six weeks of counseling, and I'm going to preach Jesus to them all six weeks. So, and then when they're getting married, I'm going to be talking about God's relationship with them and what God intends for them in their marriage. So, I mean, you know, they usually don't come ask me. But the idea is separation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he tells us, he says, do not be unequally yoked. The unequally yoked is a Christian to Belial, to some other God. It can't be satisfied. It doesn't meet the mark. God said, I want you to be separated. I want you to be separated. Why? Because I want you to worship me. And a lot of people look at that and say, why would God be so explicit? Why would he be so uh, held back to where he says you can't worship any other God? Because here's the thing. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You see, whether you want to believe it or not, all of the religions are exclusive as well. They're exclusive as well. They'll tell you the only way to heaven is their way. Well, you ask them, well, what's your way? Well, for Buddhists, it's to become a part of nirvana, right? To empty oneself completely so that you're just absorbed into the Godhead. Well, that sounds interesting. For the Muslim, guess what? They could serve Allah all their days and even sacrifice themselves, and they're still not guaranteed heaven because Allah could choose to refuse them. You see, for every other religion, they have to work to get into heaven, what happened in Christianity? God did the work for us. God said, there's no way that you can make it there on your own. And so I'm going to come down, and I'm going to bear your sin, and I'm going to take it on the cross, and I'm going to die for your sins, and I'm going to rise again so that you too one day will rise. You see, that's what makes Christianity so different. God did the work for us because there's no way we could ever make it to God on our own. You see, that's why God wanted the people to be separated and initially, you think about this. A lot of people say, you know, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture. Do you know that this is the whole reason why Oprah Winfrey went, or walked away from Christianity? Did you know that, that she used to be supposedly a Christian? Well, I can just tell you, if you walk away from Christianity, you weren't a Christian. The Bible says they were not of us. They, they went away from us because they were never of us. That's what 1 John 2.19 says. So she ran away. She, she walked away because she remembers her preacher preaching one time that he was a jealous God. And she said, why would God be jealous? Well, you know what's talking about there, about God being jealous? He's being exclusive. You know why God's being exclusive? Could you imagine if God all of a sudden said, hey, there's a dude on the corner over there by the sit-go. I want you to go worship him because he's smarter than me. He's stronger than me. Would God ever do that? No. So if you worship something that is not absolute and you worship something that's not omni, you're only wasting your time. So who else would he tell you to turn to? He's not going to. Because he understands this. What? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we fall short of not glorifying God, we're certainly not going to enjoy him forever. And if we're not going to enjoy him forever, we're not even going to enjoy life. And therefore, God says, in order for you to be fulfilled in your life, in order for you to have your best life now, some of y'all may get that book title a little bit later on. In order for you to have your best life now, you give your life to Christ because your best life really isn't now, it's what's to come. 
Separation. Why? Because we need to be separated from the world. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't mean that we no longer have friends that aren't Christians. Brothers and sisters, you better have friends that aren't Christians because who else are you going to witness to? But here's the thing. We don't go do what we used to go do. We don't go participate in the things of the world with them, but we still love them. We still care for them. We still tell them about Jesus. That's what we're called to do. But we are called to be separate. Second thing was the Sabbath. The second principle they wanted to upheld in the covenant was the Sabbath. Look at verse 31. And if the people of the land bring wear or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it on them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year an exaction of every debt. Sabbath. Oh, man. I'm going to tell you, some people just really lose sight of this. Okay? We need to, number one, we need to grasp when the Sabbath is. Number one, the Sabbath is Saturday. Saturday, not Sunday, Saturday. In the Old Testament law, it was the last day of the week. It was a day that they reserved to rest because that's when God rested in the midst of creation on the final day. And all the people say, well, wait a minute. Then why do we worship on Sunday? Why do we call Sunday the Lord's Day? Because that was the day of the resurrection. And the early church decided that, guess what? We're going to honor God on the day that he was resurrected from the dead. And we're going to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. So when we talk about the Sabbath and we look at this imagery here, the Sabbath was reserved for the people of Israel for what? To take away time to rest. Let's just be honest. The problem that we have today is we are workaholics. We're workaholics. Why? The reason why we work so much is we are so busy trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know what the problem is with trying to keep up with the Joneses? They're broken in credit card debt, and you're trying to keep up with them. You see, the idea of rest is to know and understand the necessity of taking time to spend with God. The Sabbath was reserved. But the bad thing was is the, the Pharisees came up with all kinds of rules for the Sabbath. There were certain things. I, I love this one. Did you know that women couldn't look at a mirror on the Sabbath? Because you might fix your hair and that was considered work. Now, I just want to thank you ladies for fixing your hair before you came to church today, okay? They also had a rule in there that if your donkey fell into a pit, you could pull the donkey out of the pit. But if a man fell into a pit, you couldn't pull him out on the Sabbath. He had to just sit there. They had a certain mileage that they could walk during the day on the Sabbath day. They created all these different rules so that they would be considered not working on the Sabbath, but yet working on the Sabbath. It's funny, when Jesus came along, he even healed people on the Sabbath, didn't he? And he made a statement that was very powerful to the people at that time. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? But you see, the problem was, is the people of Israel were selling things on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah even had to close the gates. And he said, guess what? We're going to close the gates on the night of. And we're going to keep the gates closed until the day after the Sabbath. And then we'll open the gates back up and then they can come in. And all of a sudden, these people, they started coming up to the gates. And they waited outside because they wanted to sell and they wanted to buy. And they wanted to do, they wanted to make trades and all these things. And Nehemiah finally told them, if I catch you outside the gates again, I'm going to put you in prison. And you won't sell anything anymore. Nehemiah had to get stern with them. But it was to honor the Sabbath. And here's the thing. Not only was the Sabbath about a day, look at this, that we would leave the seventh year an exaction of every debt. 
There was also a Sabbath year that was prescribed. What was the Sabbath year for? They actually didn't plant anything in the seventh year. Isn't that amazing? Could you imagine they let their fields go fallow? They didn't plant any seed. They didn't reap any harvest in the seventh year. Why? Because God promised he'd give them plenty in six to carry them on to the eighth year, and he would take care of them. And that was to prove God's faithfulness. And he did. But not only that, guess what happened on the seventh year? They also excused debts. How many of you'd love for the bank to excuse your debt on your house every seven years? Wouldn't that be awesome? You couldn't get a 30-year loan. They'd probably give you a seven-year loan now. But every seven years, they would excuse debts. Now, this was debts that they had towards one another. If you owed a brother something, seven years, they'd let it go. It was gone. Man, wouldn't that help many of you out still holding on to what somebody owes you if you just let it go? Because sometimes you may never get it back. And let me tell you something. The money's not worth the relationship, is it? It's just not worth it. But they had a Sabbath. They wanted to honor it. So the third principle they upheld in the covenant was supporting the temple. Look at verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths and the new moons, for the set feasts and for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Man, do you see everything that they were giving to the house of God? Now, please understand this was above and beyond the tithe because we're going to get to the tithe in a little bit. But look at what it says here. They gave a third of a shekel for the service of the house of their God. They also gave for the showbread, for the continual meat offering, for the continual burnt offering, for the Sabbath. Do you realize that there were offerings every single day that were sacrificed on the altar, right? They would bring in every single day an offering to be sacrificed on the altar. There was a day sacrifice. There was a night sacrifice. There was a new moon sacrifice. There was a new month sacrifice. There were all kinds of sacrifices that were constantly, continually burning on the altar altar they also brought showbread which was changed out about every week 12 loaves of showbread they also brought in all kinds of other things these were required by the people to bring them in in fact each tribe would take a month and they would bring those things into the temple so that the temple was supported you say well why are you ready for this so that god's house would never do without so that God's house would always be taken care of. A lot of people don't realize when they give money to the church, they just think that it just, it, it, I love this one. My favorite one was this. I don't want to give my money to the church because I don't want to give my money to that pastor. If you want to write the check out to John Ferguson, I'll take it. But, you know, I don't, I don't get all the money. I don't know where that idea ever came from. You realize that a church has light bills and water bills and has to keep up a building and they got ministries that they fund and we have a water program, we got Sunday school, we got books we got to buy, we, we got a conference that's coming up, we got uh, VBS that's coming up and you, you know, we got all these things that we got to pay for and a lot of people don't look, sit back and look and think, man, there's a lot going on and guess what, when there's a lot going on, there's a lot required in order for those things to go on. These guys knew that, guess what? Every part of the service was important, and therefore they would meet the needs of those things. So they supported the temple. Now look at verse 34. This is the interesting one. They also, number four, contributed wood. 
And we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Wood. I mean, why would that even be in there, right? It's just wood. They cut up the wood. They bring it in. They use it to burn the fires. They keep the altar stoked. That's something that's oftentimes overlooked. Can I tell you something? There are oftentimes ministries in the church that can be overlooked. I remember talking in a first church in North Carolina, and I talked to them about the importance of if everybody would be a one-hour warrior. In other words, if everybody in the church would commit to serving God for just one hour, doing one service to the Lord in the church. For the choir members, they were doing choir. And for people that were singing, they used their voices for singing. And people that taught in Sunday school, they were doing that. But my objective was to say, look, everybody can find their part. There was a lady in our church, she was a school teacher. And all she did was she went through the sanctuary, she gathered up the pencils and all the pews, and she sharpened them every week. Amen. Now a lot of people look at that and go, sharpening pencils? What's the big deal? Well, that way when you came in and you wanted to write notes, guess what? You had a sharp pencil to write notes with. If you needed to write something on your bulletin to remember, you had a pencil to write it on there with. She took something small, something minute, something simple that nobody else thought of. Why? Because even the wood is important. Even the wood is necessary. Even every little thing. And here's the thing. You may be looking at me right now and saying, well, Brother John, I don't know that I have a gift Can I tell you something? If you are saved, you have a gift. You have some ministry that God chooses and desires for you to use. You have something that God wants you to do. There is some way that you can serve in the church. you got to quit selling yourself short. Give your wood and see what God can do with it. You see, they even wanted to contribute wood. Verse 35 tells us they wanted to give of the first fruits and to bring the first fruits of our ground. And the first fruits of all fruit, of all trees, year by year, under the house of the Lord. Also, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the first things of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God, under the priests that minister in the house of our God, and that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine, and of oil, under the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. Here's what you need to understand. Here was the offering. The first ripe fruit on the tree was given to God. They would pull it off and they would give it to God. The very, the very first apple that was ripened, they would take it off the tree and they'd give it to God. The very first orange, and they'd give it to God. The very first calf that was born to a female cow was given to God. You ready for this? Your firstborn son was to be given to God. Now, how did that happen? Well, they didn't take their sons and give them in the temple and sacrifice them. They actually had to redeem them. And they would take an animal to be sacrificed for their child on their behalf. They would be redeemed just like you and I are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They would give the firstborn. It was all God's. Why? Because they wanted to give God, you ready for this? The best. We talked about it this morning. The first fruits were the best. That's exactly what Abel gave to God. He gave of the firstlings of the flock, whereas Cain just gave of the fruit. The idea here was to give God our absolute best. The people of Israel dedicated, committed themselves and said, we will give you what comes first. But not only that, look at this. 
In verse, end of verse 37, they also dedicated to giving God the annual tithes. It says, and the tithes of our ground of the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes of all the cities of our tillage. Now, if you were to sit down and write down everything that the people of Israel were required to give to God, and a lot of times we'll sit back and we'll go, we know we're supposed to give the tithe, but man, a tenth, that's a whole lot. When you sit down and you write down everything the people of Israel were called and prescribed to give to God, it was actually about a third of everything they had. Isn't that amazing? It was about a third of everything they had they gave to the Lord. They gave so much. Here's prescribed the tithe, and this is after the first fruits, and this is after the wood, and this is after the support of the temple and the yearly tax that they would give. This is on top of all that. They would then give the tithe. Now, have you ever wondered what the word tithe means? It simply means this. The Hebrew word for tithe simply means one-tenth. That's it. One-tenth. You know the easiest way to understand it? You're getting ready to, how many of you are getting ready to do your taxes? Aren't you excited about doing your taxes? Aren't you just thrilled about doing your taxes? You'll get a little piece of paper from the church, right? And it'll tell you everything you've given to the church. Add a zero to the end and move the decimal point over one time and see if that's what you made this year. If it's not, you ready for this? You didn't give a tithe. Oh, but brother, I gave some money to the church and and therefore, you know, if I didn't give a tithe, then maybe I just gave an offering. No, 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 no. The offering is what goes above the tithe. It's not what goes instead of the tithe. You see, Scripture tells us this when we read it in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. He says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. You know what's amazing? It says, and see if I don't pour out such blessing upon you. Can I tell you, I have never, ever, 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 ever done without because God has provided and taken care of me and my family. There's never been a time, never been a time I remember there was a time where I needed to get my car fixed. I don't know if any of you guys ever had this problem, but how, how many of you ever put hydraulics on your car? Anybody ever put hydraulics? I can tell you a quick way to do that, all right, and it's a cheaper way. Just drive with busted shocks, okay? I was driving my wife's car, and I would drive an hour and a half to seminary, and all the way down the road, I'd be doing this. An hour and a half, bouncing all the way down the road, just praying, Lord, please just let me get there. Just let me get there. Just let me get there. I did that for about a year. Now, here's the thing. I could have gone and fixed my car. I could have said, you know, Lord, I I need the money that I've been given to you, and my car is busted, and I need to go fix it, and I need to put new shocks on it. And I I look like a dummy driving down the road, and everybody sees me just bouncing up and down the road. But, Lord, you know, I I really, I I need to just take what I'm giving to you, and I need to hold it on to myself so that I can take care of my car. But I never did it. But I prayed, and I said, God, you know, you know I need some help with this, and my car is, is it's not going to last much longer if I keep driving like this. And so we had pastor appreciation. And I remember, and I didn't know that the church was doing it, and they had this pastor appreciation for me in October. And, and they gave me an, a love offering, and they, they brought me this money, and it was $667. And man, I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I took my car to my friend, and I gave him my car, and I said, how much is it going to cost to get my shocks fixed? And so he starts looking at my car and he goes, well, your shocks are messed up. Uh, all your belts need to be replaced, which means I got to put a water pump. Oh, and also your brakes are shot. 
And I'm sitting there going, I said, Michael, what's it going to cost me? He goes, $667. What? Dead on the money. Y'all are probably sitting there going, what kind of car were you driving that all that cost $667? Old 240 Nissan SX, all right? But the point is simply this, is if you will trust the Lord, God will take care of you. I promise you, I did this one time. I've done this actually at both churches, but I remember my first church, one of them took me up on it. I said this, I said, I ask you, if you've never tithed before, to try tithing for six months. Biblically tithe for six months. If you can come to me at the end of those six months and say that God did not provide and God did not take care of your needs, I will write you a check back for every penny you gave. Why? Because I know God will take care of you. There's a lady at my first church. She came to me. Her name was Dawn. She came to me after six months. And she goes, I don't understand it. That was her right out of, her, right out of the gate. I don't understand it. What are you talking about, Dawn? She said, I don't get it. She said, six months ago, I took you up on your challenge to prove you wrong. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> she said, I started tithing. She said, and I want you to know something. She said, I don't make any more money. She said, Robbie didn't get a raise. She said, but when we would come to the end of the month, before we started tithing, she said, there would be like pennies left in our account. She said, so we, we took you up. We took that challenge. She said, we started giving a tithe. She said, we, we haven't, she said, I don't know what happened. She said, but we'd get to the end of the month and we'd have dollars instead of cents at the end of the month after we gave. She said, you're going to have to tell me how. And I went, Malachi, God, that, that, that's the only way I can tell you. God promises that he'll take care of us if we'll trust him, if we'll believe him. And finally, repairing, uh, respecting God's house. Verse 38, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes under the house of the God of the chambers and the treasure house. And for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn and the new wine and the oil into the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers and will not forsake the house of our God. Isn't that awesome? We will not forsake the house of our God. Amen. My very first church that I worked at was called Forest Park Baptist Church. I was there for 14 and a half years as their pastor. I remember we invited some friends to come to church with us. And they were brand new neighbors. We just met them. They had four kids. And, you know, we, we were just excited to have some friends that we could invite to church. So we invited them to church. And they came to church that day, that Sunday. And they walked in and they said, well, okay, where are the Sunday school classrooms? So we started taking them down the breezeway. And we took them to where the kids' department was. And uh, as we took them into the children's department, uh, I saw the parents just kind of doing this, just kind of looking around. And we get there and the kids didn't want to go in, you know. Like every good child, right? Didn't want to go in. And so they were like, well, we, we, we can't drop our kids off. And, and I was like, oh, that's fine. You, you can actually keep your kids in the Sunday school class with you. If you, want to, if you want to go in here to one of our adult Sunday school classes, the, the kids are welcome to stay with you. And the guy goes, well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll go ahead. The kids just aren't feeling comfortable right now. We'll, we'll come back for service. <laughs> nope. He didn't come back. 
And I remember thinking to myself, what did we do? What was wrong? Why would they, why would they just, you know, I, I know the kids didn't want to go into Sunday school, but and we offered a little. What happened? And then I remember I walked out there and I remembered them doing this. And so I walked out there and I started looking like a first-time guest going into a church. And the paint was peeling off of the breezeway. And the rails were breaking off rusted metal. And the doors had cracks in them about that big going into our education building underneath. And the windows were cracked and the paint was peeling. And we had two different color bricks on the building. And as I walked through, for, as, like, asking like a first-time guest, I realized, man, we have disrespected God's house to let it get in this position. And so I went back to the church and I said, and this was a very poor church. We lived in, you know, Ashborough City was the third poorest city in America. That's where I was pastoring at my first church. We had about 150 people that were coming to that church at the time, and we had a budget of about $120,000. That was it. Whole budget. We had a church falling apart. So I went out there and I got bids on the church, and I came back to the church. I said, We got about $65,000 of work that needs to be done in God's house. And the first person stood up in the church and said, Why? Well, I propose we go get a loan. I said, No, we're not getting a loan. He said, Well, how are we going to do it? I said, it's real simple. The money's already here. You just haven't given it yet. I said, God's already supplied the need. It's right here. A church, I understand, $120,000 budget. We're going to do $65,000 worth of renovations on top of $120,000 budget. And they said, we just don't see how. Well, we started doing it a piece at a time. Within 14 months, we had raised all the money and fixed God's house to where the community began to wonder what's going on there. We had neglected God's house. We had let it fall into disarray. And when we disrespected God's house, we were not able to grow. But when we did what God had called us to do and fixed his house up, boy, we saw God work in a mighty, mighty way. The people of Israel said, we're going to respect God's house. In fact, there was a time, remember, before the time of Nehemiah, the prophet Haggai spoke to the people of Israel during the time of Ezra. And he said what? He said, you've neglected God's house. You're building your paneled houses, but you're letting God's house fall apart. What is wrong with you? Can I tell you something? I'd rather make sure that God's house has what it needs long before my house has what it needs. Because God's house should be respected in said manner. That's what these people committed to. They were committed to give God everything, to be separated, to honor the Sabbath, support the temple, contribute wood, give of the first fruits, give of the tithes, and respect God's house. My question for you tonight is simply this. What have you committed to God? What have you committed to God? Some of you may say, well, I haven't committed anything to God. That's not good. And I would tell you, if you've not committed anything to God, then you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because if you're a Christian, you've committed your life to him. And with that life, oftentimes we commit certain things. God, I commit to give you what you ask for. God, I commit to give you the study of your word. I commit to give you time and prayer. I commit to give you a portion of what you give to me. I commit to give you 
all of these things that I might glorify you with my life. What have you committed to God? If you're to say nothing, then think about something you should be committing to God. Your time, your talent, and your treasure. What are you willing to commit to God tonight?